0: Um, if you're just visiting us for the first time, uh, we are uh, in the middle of a 400-part series on the book of Genesis, um, and we've just arrived at chapter 6. I saw fear in eyes of a few of you out there. Um, no, I don't know how long we'll go, but we'll we'll see how we do. But uh, we're in chapter 6 uh, of Genesis, and... Uh, we're, that's the scripture reading for this morning, and that's found on page 5 in your ESV Pew Bible, if you have that in front of you. Genesis chapter 6. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward, when the sons of God came in to the the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land men and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens for I am sorry that I have made them but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord these are the generations of Noah Noah was a righteous man blameless in his generation Noah walked with God Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. And its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above. And set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold... I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die, but I will establish my covenant with you and you shall come into the ark, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. Uh, He did all that God commanded him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, these are uh, words that are impossible to take lightly. And with these words are many questions. And so, Father, we pray that through illumination you would... Help our minds to see and understand your character, your nature, what you desire. For we gather here together as your people, seeking to know you better, seeking to uh, emulate our lives after the life of Christ, who is our perfect example. So Father, we come, we submit ourselves to your authority. Would you speak to us today through your word? For we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. The story of Noah's Ark is, is really spectacular. But it has been so sanitized. The focus for children when they hear this story is, is the animals, right? It's Noah saving the animals. It's not so much the story of the abject wickedness of man that was so detestable before a righteous and a holy God that God himself must intervene. And he does so by wiping out the population of the earth, of his own creation. Don't expect to read that in your kids' Bibles uh, or to see some sort of depiction of that in the children's toys, like the little ones that are made of wood where you have Noah and you have some animals, you know, and, and here are the sinners who perished in the flood. But, but if you think about it, I mean, it, it, it's men, it's women, it's children, and yes, it is animals, But the the unsanitized version draws out a great deal of questions of who God is and and what He is like, and not questions like, who is the greatest financier in the Bible? Noah, because he was floating his stock while everyone else was in liquidation. Oh, (laughs) we'll get serious now. So we start with Genesis 6, as we have transitioned from the book of the generations of Adam, and we have seen the, the line of Seth, which is in contrast to the line of Cain that we read about in chapter 4. And we looked at Enoch, and, and, and Enoch walking with God. But we, we still see that the, the, the curse of man still exists. It, it hasn't ceased And our question that remains with us is, is who is going to undo this curse? Will we meet the seed of the woman today? Well, the prophecy of Noah from his father, out of the ground the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. And that sounds very promising. And we read in chapter 6, Of the sons of God and the daughters of man. This little section of scripture has confused people and scholars for a long time. Uh, I have a friend from college who insists that I need to teach from Genesis 6 and tell everyone who the Nephilim are. uh, And he references this to me all the time. Have you preached on Genesis 6? So I got to tell him this week, I'm preaching on Genesis 6. Who's very excited, <clears throat> because here's the thing. Some people think that the sons of God are angels. Some people think that the sons of God were these uh, royal, tyrannical successors to Lamech. But I think the simplest explanation may be the right one, and so you won't be amazed at this. It's, it really is quite simple. And the simple explanation is that the sons of God are the Sethites, those that are in the lineage of Seth. And that fits the immediate previous context of the lineage of Seth that's given to us. And so, if the sons of God is the line of Seth, then the daughters of men probably refer to Canaanite women, not Canaanite women, but Canaanite women in the line of Cain. And the intermarriage between the Sethite men and the Canaanite women help explain why Noah is the sole righteous offspring of Seth after nine generations. But look at the words that follow our two people groups here. Sons of God, daughters of man. What happened? The sons of God saw That the daughters of men were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. They saw it was attractive, and they took. I mean, does any of that language sound familiar to you? It's a repetition of the pattern of original sin from Genesis chapter 3. Eve saw that the fruit was good and she took it. And the penalty for eating of the fruit for Adam and Eve was death. And so God says, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh, his days shall be 120 years. Meaning that God's life-giving spirit which creates and sustains life, will be withdrawn. And therefore, chaos and disorder will destroy the earth and wipe out life. And just as God did not take Adam and Eve's lives in the moment of their sin, He is patient and He allows for 120 years before the destruction will come. Now, this certainly shows us the character of our God. He he says something will happen, and it will happen, but He is also gracious. He is also patient. You know, for a long time, I thought that that meant that that man could not live past 120 years. That's the way it reads at its uh, initial reading. You see, that's why you see a lot in the charismatic movement, like Kenneth Copeland, talking about declaring things into being, speaking things into existence, which is something that's reserved only for God. And I've seen videos of him making these declarations of living 120 years. I'm going to live 120 years. I'm going to live 120 years. I'm going to live 120 years. Well, he's like 86 or something, so I guess we'll have to wait and find out, see if that actually comes about. Who knows? Who knows? But who are these Nephilim? Who are these people? These offspring of the the sons of God and the daughters of men. Mighty men of old, men of renown. It sounds positive, right? I mean, this sounds like a a good group of people. Is this not a positive caption? Isn't this what we're all looking for? We, We all want mighty men. We want warriors. We want giants. We want men of renown. Compare this with how Noah is described in verse 9. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Noah is a humble man who has submitted himself to God. He is not a valiant warrior, he is not a man of renown yet. He is not a giant, he is not marked by violence. And what happens? One is saved, and the others perish. One is a name that people for thousands and thousands of years will still remember, and the others are remembered for nothing other than being a strange group from Genesis chapter 6. And the Hebrew root for the name Nephilim means to fall, perhaps uh, suggesting their fate. What is strange is that the text tells us that their line continues after the flood, which reminds us that these same kind of horrible people existed after the flood. And so, obviously, we have to conclude that, that through one of Noah's daughters-in-law, uh, daughters-in-law that that line continued, and the continued fallenness of man exists after the flood. And now we get into the challenging part of this chapter, as if that wasn't hard enough. And this is where I want to set up camp for us uh, for the rest of the sermon, verses 5 to 8. And we're going to draw our points uh, this morning from this section, these verses here. And our first point is the depravity of man, the depravity of man. All of mankind, as we said last week, was and is depraved. It was not that Cain was wicked and depraved, and that the rest of the lineage of Adam uh, was good. It is that all of mankind is depraved. If you remember from last week, we discussed how there was a point in time when Enoch, who walked with God, was reconciled with him. But this is not the way our world sees things, is it? The world sees things through this prism. Everyone is inherently good, and then because of their surroundings or their upbringing, they make bad choices or are brainwashed to be bad or evil. It is society that produces bad people. And so the secular world is constantly reforming its values to force out better people based on their values and their definitions. I suppose this is where the whole woke movement comes out of, that that you need to be able to see the marginalized in society, which is a Christian concept, but when you vilify anyone who doesn't wholesale hold to your views, which today includes same-sex marriage and and transgenderism and, and a myriad of other issues that are unbiblical then that movement has become itself part of the problem. And it shows that anything that is not led by the Spirit of God is doomed to implode on itself. And so now, many woke people are not woke enough because some other group is added to this list of marginalized This is why J.K. Rowling, who is a pro-homosexual feminist, is now canceled because she refuses to support transgenderism. Well, there you go. That's my 30 seconds of politics. I hope you enjoyed it. Look with us. Look together at verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only for evil continually. This is reiterated again in verses 11 and 12. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence, and God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Back in Genesis chapter 1, God looked at His creation, and He said it was good. And now he looks at creation and he sees the opposite. It is extensive, meaning that it has touched every single person. And it is intensive in that it has gone to the heart of every single person. Well, perhaps uh, this is just the, the terribly wicked that were before the flood. Now things aren't as bad as then. Look with me, if you have your Bible, look with me at Genesis chapter 8, verse 21, where we will look next week at God's covenant with Noah. But look at what it says, chapter 8, verse 21. The Lord says, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. That is after the flood. The poison has remained in the human race. There is no part of us that has remained untouched by sin. We do not do anything or say anything of ourselves that is good. You have no thought that has entered your mind. You have no uh, uh, words that you have spoken. You have no actions that you have done in and of yourself that is good. It is the image of of the glass of water that has uh, just a few drops of poison in it. It is not concentrated cyanide, no, but there is no part of the water that does not have poison in it. That is total depravity. And so we move on to verse 6, and this is point 2. And this is God's response to the corrupted world. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. And it's here that we need to spend a little bit of time explaining this passage. A friend of mine was leading a Bible study of sixth grade boys recently when this verse came up, and one of the boys said, "'Are we all mistakes?' And my friend asked, well, what do you mean by that? And then he pointed to this part. God regretted making man on earth. Does God make mistakes? How can the unchangeable, sovereign God regret a decision that he made? If you interpret this a certain way, this verse could be terrifying. Is God actually in control Or or does he make mistakes? We cannot read our own human experiences into the divine mind. This is our feeble attempt to use human language to convey an extremely deep emotion from the God of the universe. And in our feeble, weak minds... This is the emotion that helps us understand God's response to the abject wickedness of creation. But to keep us from steering into incorrect and unhelpful views of God, we need to balance this passage and passages like this with others that help us more fully understand what is happening here. So, all we can work from is what we know from Scripture. We know that we are important to the Lord. We know He expresses grief and anger when we sin, though He does this in a manner that is appropriate to His own nature. We know that God is not incapacitated by emotions. We know that nothing surprises him, we know his character never changes, and we know that God ordains all things, whether or not they bring him joy. Ultimately, he does this for his good purpose. Our world is filled with violence and abuse and destruction and fear, and this grieves the heart of God. But our world is also filled with selfishness and pride and arrogance and greed, and this too grieves the heart of God. But the question would be, if God takes all of this away, would everything be better? You see, this is the gospel in Genesis. We read over and over again just how wicked and messed up man is. But God is working through the wickedness of man and through his fallen vessels to bring restoration, to bring reconciliation, to reverse the curse, to bring people back into the garden to defeat death. Because you see, thousands of years later, God himself would stand on the earth and he would stand at the graveside of a friend of his named Lazarus. And he would stand there and he would weep. And he would weep at the intrusion of death into a good world. And soon after, he would find himself facing death with a cross. And then there was not only grief and pain in the heart of God, there was death in the heart of God. He himself drinks the poison. One clergyman once wrote, Reason cries, if God were good, He could not look on the sin and misery of man and live. His heart would break. And it is the church who points to the cross and says, God's heart did break. And the pain of verse 6 points to the pain of the cross. And that may move us greatly. And probably more so than the next point, which comes from verse 7. And this is our third point. That God's sadness leads to God's judgment. Verse 7, So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, Man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I made them. It's a tragic account, the flood, isn't it? The the creation is actually being put in reverse. Genesis chapter 1, the, the waters recede, giving way to the dry land so that man and animals had a place to live. And now those waters are actually returning. Genesis chapter 1, men, women, animals, they multiply and fill the earth. And now they are being reduced to just a handful. Creation was moving out of chaos and into order. Now with the flood, the chaos is returning But we cannot have a God who cares without a God who judges. A God who wept but did not judge, that would render God impotent. Just a well-meaning weakling who who cannot help because he is powerless to help. And the judgment of verse 7 is the necessary consequence of the sorrow of verse 6. The judgment of verse 7 is the necessary consequence of the sorrow of verse 6. But the question is asked, shouldn't the guilty be punished and the innocent rescued? Verse 5, again, no one is innocent in the eyes of God. If we want to know what the flood shows us today, we look no further than Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 24. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of of the Son of Man. Everything was normal. Life was normal. People were going about their, their, their usual day. Two men will be in a field, one will be taken, one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken, one will be left. And so Jesus said, the flood is a sign of the last judgment. And it is a warning to get ready. And what we don't like about it is that the verdict of verse 7 is a just verdict. This is what we deserve. We think it's hard that God should destroy so many when in actuality it is merciful. What do I mean by that? The fact that God saves anyone is merciful. We say, I, I think it's terrible to suggest that, that God could send people to hell. If we actually understood our own depravity, if we actually understood our wickedness, our sinfulness, we would word that the other way around. I think it is astonishing that God in His mercy allows anyone into heaven. Our final point this morning is from verse 8, which is that God does rescue some. But he only does so by grace and through faith. Verse 8, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord, or literally, he found grace. Let me tell you what this does not mean. It does not mean that Noah deserved God's goodness or favor. It does not mean that the the poison of original sin is somehow bypassed uh, with Noah. That that Noah, of all people, is in some way perfect. What happens after the flood makes that clear that he wasn't. We might get the point a little bit more clearly if we reverse the order that we read that. Instead of saying, Noah found grace or favor, we rather we say, grace found Noah. God decided in His free Sovereign grace to choose Noah and to show him favor. And when we are told in verse 9 that Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation, which doesn't mean he was perfect. It means that someone who takes care to have a good conscience and that he walked with God, all of that in Noah was the result of what God did in him. He did not deserve it, but God has decided that He will rescue some as He rescued Noah. And in Peter's two letters, the Apostle Peter, he writes two letters about Noah. In 2 Peter chapter 2, he says that the flood proves to us that God really does judge the unrepentant And He really can rescue those who trust in Him. And in 1 Peter chapter 3, Peter says that in the water of Christian baptism are like the waters of the flood around the ark. In other words, the the baptism and the ark are both signs of salvation to those who trust in Christ. And because the ark is a, is a sign of salvation and rescue, we have to recognize that it is God who saves. In the middle of the Noah account that we'll look at in more detail next week, in chapter 7, verse 16, and you can turn to that if you like, chapter 7, verse 16, the author says that God shut the door. This is a powerful description, a really loaded phrase. You see, because Noah did not save himself, it is God who shut him in, but it also illustrates the opposite, that he shut others out. Peter also tells us in his letter that he did this after a period of patient waiting while Noah was a preacher of righteousness. The ark is a very black and white depiction. Some are inside, others are outside. Certainly my prayer is that each and every one of you in this room, and hearing my voice, find yourself by God's grace inside the ark. If not, we must remember that the time of the open door is limited Respond to the grace that God has shown you in and through the the blood of Christ. Be found inside, for He is our ark. We're about to celebrate the Lord's Supper, which is a sign and and a seal of the work of Christ on our behalf. And we celebrate it not as people who have saved ourselves and not as people who mock those outside the ark, but as a community who is repentant and grateful for the saving grace of our Savior. And while the table that we partake in is not for those outside. We desperately desire that you would be a part, but you need Christ first. You need to be in the ark. Let's pray together. Father, these are deeply challenging passages that many people have read. And have walked away from the grace of God because they said, I cannot believe in a God who does this and that. I cannot believe in a God of judgment. And yet in that foolish phrase, they have actually walked away from the God of grace and mercy. And Father, we who are here, who find ourselves in union with Christ can freely admit that this was not a work of our own that was done, but this is because of the work of Christ, and it is because you have brought this by grace to us in giving us faith to believe these things. And so we walk the walk of faith, recognizing the grace that was poured out for us, putting our trust more and more in you. Father, as we see a world that is just as wicked as the days of Noah, and yet at the same time we hear the words of Christ ringing in our ears, that the final days will be like the days of Noah, that it will come quickly. And so, Father, we want to make ourselves and ensure that we are in right standing with you. And so we gather together as a body and we recognize these Uh, gifts of grace that you have poured out for us. And we come in in the desire that we would grow in these gifts of grace, that, that you would more and more help us to see more clearly and to use us more efficiently for the work of the gospel. And so, Father, we thank you for these difficult passages because they reveal your character. Oh, Father, that we would have eyes to see your graciousness in the midst of all the turmoil and calamity that takes place in these verses. And so, Lord, now as we take this, your supper, that we would, as Paul says, have eyes to see the the body that is here with us, another grace that you have exhibited to us in the provision of a community in which we can encourage one another into these things, So, Father, continue to give us eyes of faith, more and more trusting in you, more and more understanding your nature and your character, more and more having these words of life on our lips as we speak them to a dying and lost world. For we pray this in Christ's name, amen.